previously on the Sports Refuge podcast. My family still to this day rips me like, so you got on TV, good for you. The first question you got right, the answer was Hooters. Well done, kid. From Delaware, almost live, this is a Sports Refuge podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome to episode 56 of the Sports Refuge, the weekly interview show where guests discuss their connection with sports. I'm your host, Earl Holland. My alma mater, Snow Hill High School, has been a good source for show guests since I began this podcast 20 months ago. This time, I'm double dipping as this episode's guests, Matt and Josh Shockley, not only attended Snow Hill, but they also went to my college alma mater, the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. The two brothers have their own claims to fame as Matt has had an experience as an art teacher and beer brewer while also partnering with Josh to publish their own comic books under the brand PLB Comics. In this episode, I talk with Matt and Josh about running cross-country, beer brewing, as well as their interest in comics, and what goes into publishing an edition of their comic books. We'll also discuss what it's like making an appearance in a major Hollywood movie. I'll also note that due to technical difficulties, Matt is in only half of the episode, but the time I had with him was very entertaining, and I look forward to having him back again. Right now... We head into my interview with Matt and Josh Shockley. Thank you guys for coming on the show. I know conditions sometimes aren't the most optimal, but thank you guys for coming on the show. I know the biggest thing I wanted to do is tell the people about creating comic books. How did you guys get an interest in art and creating and drawing in comic books? I'll let Josh answer that one. Go. I was going to let you answer that before your battery dies. So. Ah, my battery's going to die. All right. Well, all right. The story that's normally told is that when Josh was seven years old, he created PLB Comics. I was four years old, and I only wanted to do what my big brother was doing, so I was like, I want to create comics too. Yay! It's all that my pretty fault. Much it. it was all his fault, yeah. So our parents were very supportive uh, of our artistic endeavors, thankfully, and they encouraged us very much along the way. Obviously, they didn't know anything about comics, so they were like, yeah, sure, whatever, okay. But, uh, you know, we were drawn. Fortunately, we had uh, really good art teachers. I think uh, throughout our public schooling, that really encouraged us. Uh, Miss Powell at Snow Hill Middle School, and then later on Tom Hogan at Snow Hill High School. Yep. Uh, very positive role models. Very structured uh, educational experience that really kind of pushed us and tested us and forced us to better ourselves. How about you, Josh? What led to your interest in, in drawing? I always wanted to do comics since I was a little kid. There was never any real backup plan. Um, it kind of had a partial backup plan to be a rock star, but, you know, I can't sing or play <laughs> instruments, so that didn't work out either. But uh, just always wanted to do comics, and, and pretty much like Matt said, you know, we were very fortunate. We had a very nurturing environment, and um, and we had a lot of great instructors along the way, both in uh, public school and UMES, too, uh, with uh, Chris Harrington and Brad Hudson at UMES. And, uh, you know, it's kind of one of those things. We started doing it in 2006. Uh, we self-published our first book. PLB Comics Presents, and uh, it just kind of stuck. And uh, it's just, it's been a lot of fun. We've been very fortunate to have a lot of support. And I think that yeah. the biggest thing is, I know a lot of people will ask what the greatest misconception is when it comes to drawing and creating things of those sort. To you, what do you feel those misconceptions would be? Um, I think one big thing that people always kind of miss up on is that they always assume like it's some weird hidden genetic thing that it just mm. randomly occurred that we just popped out of our mamas and started being able to draw you know like that was it um and it's not you have to really 
practice, practice, practice constantly, nonstop practice. You want to get better at something, just like anything else in life, you have to practice. So if you want to be an artist, it's not one of those like, oh, I just got the short end of the stick genetically, I can't do it. No, you just you got to sit down and do it. So the idea that it comes easy, I guess, is, is a big misconception that we run into. Everybody's like, oh, it must be so nice, so wonderful to have that talent. I'm like, well, I worked really hard to get to this point, and I'm still working very hard to better myself. You know, and then sometimes Josh usually like say, you know, oh, you call it like it's a blessing. Sometimes it's a curse. You know, why did I get stuck being an artist? Oh, God. You know, people ever think it's like, oh, it's just so wonderful and glamorous. And mm, not always. Yeah. Like what Matt said, like anything else. I mean, honestly, it's like athletes, you know, they train, they practice, they work out all their, you know, condition themselves their whole lives to be, you know, in that that state that they're in and, and for us it's the same way you know i mean it, it drawings like anything else if you go for a period of time and don't draw you kind of lose that feel of it and everything so it's good to try and draw a little bit each day i would say that in the misconception that you know like a lot of people are like oh you know oh you're an artist uh do you want to draw this for me for no money it'll be fun for you you know like a lot, you get a lot of that but uh you draw yeah. my tattoo <laughs> Yeah, I don't like your tattoo artists can draw that. They're they're probably very good artists, you know. Like let them do that. But yeah, I mean usually people are nice. They're they're not, you know, jerks about nothing. But yeah, that that's a general misconception there. Another one is that we make a lot of money off this. Yeah. So. <laughs> we must be rich. No. <laughs> it is fun though. But yeah, there's not a whole lot of there, there's not a big pot of gold. You know, if you get lucky, there's a very small, moderate pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> A tiny pot of gold. (laughs) I always thought that especially another thing is that everybody might try to emulate other people's styles instead of trying to find a style that suits them best. I know not everybody's going to draw similarly. Uh, You guys probably have different drawing styles yourself. But when it came to finding your niche, creatively drawing designs and looks, how did you know you were there? There's influences on you. Um, you start off you wanting to be your favorite comic book artist, you know, it was like Jim Lee or something like that. Um, so you're like, oh, I really like the way that looks. That resonates with me. So I would like to try to do that. But then you kind of just take, you know, you get influences from multiple different sources and they all kind of come together in this amalgamation and the amalgamation slowly starts becoming your style. Um, and that is once again, constantly evolving. Every time I think that I have like a set, like, I've got it. This is me. This is my style. Good to go. Like a year later, I look back and I'm like, holy crap, I've totally changed how I draw that. You know, it depends on what I read, depends on what movies I watch. Um, All of it has an impact in some way. And you're just kind of constantly working towards the next better version of you as an artist. Yeah, I I agree with what he said. Um, And, you know, I mean, it, it is one of those things where as a kid, you know, you grow up reading what you want to read, you know, like Frank Miller, Jim Lee, Kevin Eastman, all that kind of stuff. And you kind of pick and choose. You're like, well, I like some of that stuff. So maybe I'll incorporate it in my style. I think the thing for me and Matt is we never really tried to, uh, they call it aping a style. We never really tried to ape anybody's style, like to the point where we were like a knockoff of that person. Like if you look at our stuff, there's definitely like some influence, but I think we tried our best to develop our own styles. Cause I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, you know, you don't want to, replicate somebody's style so much that the best you're ever going to be is a good knockoff you know you kind of want to have your own style so and matt's got his own style and i've got my own style and we grew up drawing together but i mean our styles are kind of different his is very kind of clean and precise and mine's very kind of rough and jaggedy and everything but it i think it works for the different 
stories we're trying to tell and everything. I used to be in the drawing, not definitely not at the level you guys were. I always felt that my most accurate thing was drawing. Like I could draw base players, I could draw the exact design of a jersey, the number, the outline, everything like that. Couldn't get faces to save my life. Faces were always the hardest ones. I would just go. They'd have two eyes on the side and a circular head and some type of hair, and that would be it. And I know faces were tough. Shading was tough, and. I didn't think that was sort of up my corner. I mean, even though I think it'd be nice to sort of get back in the drawing again, at least maybe less working on faces and features and more like designs and color schemes. I had always thought like doing a, like a little portfolio of like drawing maybe basketball jerseys and Charlie stylizing them, uh, contrasting modern and past uh, nods, but that's something I haven't done. I feel like I never have enough time to do anything anymore, but that's just something I'd like to do for a hobby, I guess. Yeah, finding time's always tricky. True. They're not making any more hours in the day, you know, last I heard. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it, it's funny. It's like everybody that draws, whether they draw for fun or just draw whatever, like no matter what amount, there's always something they always have trouble with. For you, it's faces. For me, it's hands, you know, and, and buildings and cars, um, <laughs> which is why, like, the, the book that I've been working on for a while, John the Swamp Dude, takes place in a swamp with no cars, no buildings, and everybody has like four fingers because they're like little alien people and stuff. So it's perfect, you know? So you got to play to your strengths as an artist, you know? Yes, indeed. <laughs> so when it came to the comic books, were you just as equally interested, and I guess, in the content and the storylines in addition to the drawing? I have about like 20 storylines in my head that I got to get down on paper. Unfortunately, you only have enough time to draw them one at a time. I can write a lot faster than I can draw. So... I'd say it's about 50, 50 though. Like the biggest part for me for comic books that makes them different than other books is the visuals. So I feel like they are still the most important part of a book. Um, but if the story is not great, then you've got a pretty looking book with a crappy story. So you got to find that right balance there. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much what Josh said for the most part. I am primarily an artist. Um, I can write, but I have a hard time weaving long arcing stories i'm good for like short little sprints you know what i mean tiny little snippets i can do that but like trying to get my mind to wrap around the idea of like weaving in multiple characters and a massive storylines is tricky for me so sometimes it's easier for me just to stick to the picture but they are both equally important because you can't have one without the other don't have a comic book anymore if you don't have a story and art you know yeah, and I always think about, especially like the aspect of television, you look at it where you see a show and you don't really think about it, but there are shows where you have one main storyline and you have two, maybe three subplots. And you really, I, when I was going through like this whole screenwriting phase that I wanted to do, I just noticed the more I watch TV shows, okay, main story, then oh, subplot A, subplot B, maybe subplot C, and it's like, man, that is very tough, and if you don't really pay attention to it, it's like, you're just sort of like, why are these guys here? I want to see the main story. How is that going to work out? Yeah, that, that's true, and you know, TV has kind of changed its format, too. Like, it used to be a lot different. It used to be a lot of self-contained kind of episodes, you know, and, and now it's become a thing where the whole season is like a story arc. And it's like, if you miss one episode, you don't know what the hell is going on. You know, you're like, what I miss? And, you know, it used to be you could watch, you know, Magnum P.I. or Miami Vice or Golden Girls or anything. And it's like, oh, well, I missed 20 episodes. Oh, it doesn't matter. I can still follow the story, you know. <laughs> yeah, television has definitely changed in that respect. Very much so. 
the idea of massives, one giant story arc going for the entire season is a change. I kind of have a love-hate relationship with that, in all honesty. Like, I like the idea of, like, those big, you really get into them, oh my gosh, stories, you know. But then at the same time, I probably have some ADHD. So I really like those small, like, 30-minute, like, episodes. Like, yes, okay, good, open, shut, don't have to worry about it anymore. So... I'm conflicted. <laughs> and that makes me think of like TV shows with characters, especially as you go along the series, mainly sitcoms. It's where early on, okay, the characters are funny, quirky. You like them. By the end, they're just so unlikable that these guys are jerks. Why are you guys this irritating to the point where, you know, he likes you guys. It's like third rock from the sun was an example where, okay, you know, they're all great. They're all here. And then by the end, they're just a bunch of dicks. Oh, I never saw that actually. I think I did either. Um, yeah. You know, we, we probably didn't get it. probably came on cable. We didn't get it. We got like the three channels for a long yeah. time back. In the- <laughs> I'm, trying yeah. to, I'm trying to think because some of them just go off the rails. And then we're one on ABC where the character just became unlikable. You know, there probably were, but I didn't pay any attention to it. Full House was not one of them. They just got all annoying. But, you know, that's a show. What happened? I got sick of Ross kids. on Friends. He became a pain in the ass after a while, you know? I never. I was thinking Friends, too, actually. I never watched Friends like that. I, I wasn't a fan of it. I, I always uh, tell my wife this. My wife loves Friends. That trying to watch the episode Friends didn't break a laugh. But you could have Seinfeld on on mute. Kramer slides to the door. That's it. I'm laughing because I don't know. And I know humor subjective. And that's something I know. Everybody likes different things. And not no one in the whole world is going to like it. But to me, Friends was something I just couldn't get into. You know, I, I got to say, I, I don't know how well it holds up. I haven't seen it in a while. Probably if I go back or watch it now, it's probably kind of painful. You know? <laughs> You know, one show I'm going to try to get into uh, is Frasier. I haven't seen it. I, I know some shows you try to get past the first season where it's really clunky, like The Office was. But but yeah, after we got past the first season of The Office, it, it was smooth sailing pretty much to the last season. Never saw that either. But I never saw Cheers. So, I, I, yeah, kind of missed all it. And we grew up watching different shows. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted to ask you guys, what is normally the process like of getting an edition out? How much work goes into that, and what's the production process? Uh, it's a very slow process. Uh, so Matt's got a book he's working on right now, and I got a book I'm working on right now. And uh, But basically, the general process is you have a idea in mind for your story, and you you know whether you kind of just have the loose plot and you draw the pages and income and everything or or you write it all out you can kind of do it either way um but anyway you draw the pages you know we print in black and white because it's cheaper plus it kind of fits the feel for our stories which are kind of gritty and dark and then uh we pass them off to our third guy james doofendock and he does the letters and he kind of edits it as he goes along um and everything and then he sets uh sets the book up in uh in indesign and and then it's sent to the printer and about a month later we get our books back and it sounds kind of easy but obviously we're doing this as a part-time side gig so it takes a while to draw a book and all that other stuff we just talked about so but that's the basic process of it yeah in a nutshell (laughs) so do your editions run monthly or every other month what is that rotation like well, let's see. This year we put out two books, the John the Swampy book and a special was an anthology book with short spooky stories. Um, and that was a pretty good year. 
<laughs> so I, maybe we're averaging about one book a year. Maybe. I, I mean, I'm hoping to have the new book I'm working on out before the end of 2020, but we'll see how it goes. Like I, I'm, it's not in stone. So it, it is a very time consuming process. It takes a while. Yeah. Especially since it's not a full-time job. Yeah. You know, that's the kicker. I mean, we, we've got full-time job and then we've got wives and, you know, other things you got to do, eat, sleep, all that jazz. So it's one of those like, okay, I gotta, I gotta find some time to wiggle in at least like an hour today to draw. God, if I can, it would be great. And then you're like, you know what? My brain is shot. I just want to sit down and watch a dumb movie. So it's rough trying to really force yourself like, okay, got to get to this, got to get to this. It takes a while, unfortunately, to, to, for us to put out a book because, you know, it'd be different if it was like, hey, this is your eight hour gig, man. Cool. Done. We'd be crushing things. But it does take a time. Yeah. A normal professional book, they have like a, uh, they have a person that writes, person draws, person letters and colors. They kind of have an assembly team and a full time job. So they kind of average like one book a month. But I mean. Most indie guys like us move that fast. Some move faster than us, but don't terribly fast. And I am notoriously slow. Slow. <laughs> Josh moves really fast. He draws really quick. So <laughs> I've mastered the art of watching TV and drawing at the same time. So See, I can't. Did I mention my ADHD earlier? I can't. <laughs> can't do that, man. It's terrible. I'm jealous. You know, everybody talks about truly multitasking. I don't know if I can truly multitask. There's times like if I'm editing like an episode of a podcast, I'm doing that while watching TV and sort of like you're going to lose your attention to one or the other. And then you just sort of like, OK, now I got to double back on one or like, oh, did I just miss that? Yeah, I can't do it. Can't multitask. Save my life. It's terrible. Talking to you guys right now and, and drinking a beer is about as difficult as it gets. <laughs> On the topic of beer, Matt, I know you got into brewing. Yeah, I, yeah, I got into brewing. I started home brewing at about uh, 2009 and uh, started as like a, me and a good buddy, Matt Hill, you probably remember from Snow Hill. Uh, he and I became drinking buddies and uh, he was like, I want to try to make beer. And I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? So we bought as a Christmas present to each other, bought one of the, you know, little easy homebrew setups. I brewed the first beer. It was terrible. It's horrible. Disgusting. But I was hooked. So I kept going and going and going and going, and then eventually, uh, it was 2016, I left uh, the teaching field for good and was uh, fortunate enough to uh, randomly land a gig brewing at Backshore Brewing Company in Ocean City, right on the boardwalk. Um, fortunately, I uh, knew a guy, knew a guy who was like, you should give it a shot. And I'm like, all right, sure, why not? Nothing else to lose. I quit my job. Woohoo! But uh, yeah, so I've been doing that now for the past four years. It's uh, it's fun. Beats teaching, that's for sure. Woo! I can only imagine the grind of teaching. Everybody for years, especially in high school, is like, yeah, you should get into teaching. You should get into teaching. Especially to look at my aspect. Oh, we need more male black teachers. I'm like, nah, I'm good. Teaching is not for me. And, hey, I respect the stuff that teachers go through. That's just not my thing. And I don't know how people do it. I mean, I did it for nine years. Pretty bullying. <laughs> and I thought art, you know, which is like, yay, fun art stuff, you know. And it was still pretty, pretty grueling. Uh... I have absolute respect for teachers. You know, they're a super essential part of all of our, our childhoods. And growing up, they keep us into the people we become, whether that's good or bad. <laughs> but uh, I just got to a point where, like, I couldn't do it anymore, man. It, it takes the thing that you love, and it kind of makes you start to resent it a little bit, you know? So it was no longer for me. I left before I ended up uh, in jail for some terrible reason. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, quit that. Brewing beer. Woohoo! Beer's much better. 
Beer doesn't talk back. Beer does break your colored pencils and throw it at you or things like that. Beer is always there for you. It's always so wonderful. Nice and quiet. Makes you happy. It's good times. Good times. Yeah, I just couldn't imagine. I can imagine kids can be rough, and that's the thing. When we were at Snow Hill, you guys were involved in cross country and did a little bit of track and field. How did you guys get into that? As I see Matt Hill's comment about the cause and solution to all my problems when it comes to alcohol. Perfect Homer Simpson line. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Matt. How did you guys get into doing track and field? And really, what was that like? Had you guys done that before prior getting into high school? Well, we grew up soccer guys. Our dad coached soccer, so we were into soccer growing up. He coached outdoor and indoor soccer. And uh, I played soccer my freshman year of high school. Uh, I had coached Giles. And uh, and uh, I enjoyed it, but I realized that, honestly, I kind of suck at soccer. Um, but I was good at running, you know, and you have to run in order to play soccer. So um, that's kind of what attracted me to cross country. And we had uh, Master Gunny. And he was just a phenomenal coach. He was really good. So I really enjoyed cross country a lot. It was a lot of fun. Well, I didn't play soccer my freshman year. I went out for it. I started practicing. And then, unfortunately, I realized that all the guys on the soccer team were a bunch of dicks. <laughs> People who went to school with are going to listen to this show. What are you doing? <laughs> you know what? I've been meaning to say that to them for years. Y'all were a bunch of dicks. I'm sorry. It's the liquor talking. You know, because here's the kicker. Here's the problem is that all the kids that play soccer in high school play free rec soccer. They went to, like, you know, they played, like, you know, traveling soccer teams, like professional, like, league stuff in Salisbury. And they, they didn't do the, the poor kid rec stuff. You know what I mean? This is true. And uh, so they all grew up together. They knew one another. They've been playing soccer for years. So a kid who played really outdoor soccer a day in his life coming up. Uh, and they were just especially the upperclassmen, they were just terrible to me, you know? And I was like, why am I going to play this sport with these guys? And you know what? Soccer guys haven't changed. No offense, soccer guys. When I was teaching in high school, it's the same guy. It literally the same guy, you know? So I, st I did not play soccer because of that. I was like, I don't want to play soccer with these dicks. They suck. So I, instead, I planned on going out for basketball because I really did enjoy basketball. And we played some basketball growing up, too. So I started yeah. running running cross country or track in preparation to play basketball because i was figured like why not and then of course i realized like okay i'm nowhere near as good as the the worst player on the basketball team who rides the bench the whole time <laughs> so i'll never get to play so that's my reason why i kept running and you know josh was running so i was like oh, i'll run with josh that'll be fun and eventually you know obviously master gunny was an amazing coach he's an awesome guy awesome guy and uh i really enjoyed it after that you know like we're like all right what are we doing we're running six miles today hell yeah let's rock and roll like, that became, like, a, a great thing. It was very weird. Great team. Everybody was very close. It was a big family. Because there wasn't this horrible amount of, like, pressure on individuals that I feel like you get sometimes in other sports. Everybody was very much, you know, striving to become their individual best. And uh, we really encouraged one another. And it was, uh, I really like that about our cross country and our, our track days. That was fun. And we were also able to parlay that into a very brief film career because when the runaway bride came to town they were looking for extras you know to have this scene in the movie and if you haven't seen the movie you know it's it's a scene where you don't know what season it is because there's kids practicing baseball and there's kids practicing football and track and soccer and god only knows if it's fall or spring nobody knows but anyway 
So we are on the on the track, uh, running around the track, and they're playing football, and they needed extras. So they're like, we'll get the cross-country kids. They don't have to do any method acting. They're already runners. It's good. You know, so Julia Roberts ran right in front of us, and they shot this scene that's like 10 seconds in the movie, and it took nine hours to shoot it in the freezing cold. We're all wearing, like, our little running shorts, freezing little tank tops. But we were official extras, and uh, we made our uh, 60 bucks, and I think they took 20 out in taxes or something. So pretty good gig. But, you know, her career really took off after she did that movie with us because I think she won an Oscar a couple years later for Aaron Brockovich. So I'd like to think we had a small part in that, you know. <laughs> You know, it's really funny going back to the discussion of Master Gunny. And I don't know if you guys heard the episode I have with Chris Jenkins, but I always think of Master Gunny because I wrestled from the wrestling aspect because I was not going to run any more than I needed to. So cross country, track and field were not going to be anywhere in the cards for me. And it's interesting. Just the one thing about Master Gunny was that he made you believe that you could do something and maybe it's the old Marine in him, the old drill sergeant in him. But I feel like he was able to relate with everybody. And I think that's the biggest thing. I know we're talking about him like he's dead or something, which he's not. To my knowledge, I don't think he is. But that is the making of a good coach because, especially in how many people talk about you with so much relevance, years after, almost two decades after he coached, a lot of people still talk about his methods and how they really work. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's it's one of those things where he was a good coach. And, and like you said, he could identify with, with really everybody. I mean, because, you know, we were all running at various levels, you know, like some were faster, some were slower. But he was good with everybody across the board. And I got to tell you, like, I mean, you remember, he's not a very tall guy. I've never seen a short guy run that fast in my life. He could run like nobody's business. I mean, it was insane. Like, and he never got tired. Yeah, I remember we'd do the run. Probably you guys do the same run that we did for wrestling for cross country. We start at the high school, depending on which way. We'd go one way down Washington Street, turn down Church Street, go down Washington, wrap around behind the school, like near where Kevin Lunford's mom's house was, all the way around down the bike trail and then back to the school. Yeah, there was like a uh, so like a, a gate or something on one of those back streets, right? Yeah, that, yeah, that little bike yeah. path where you got to go around it. There's like the, the bar, and then there's like a small little sliver of two metal posts. Yeah, yeah. And in the spring, you'd like be swallowing gnats because there was always this family of gnats that lived right around there. And Master Gunny would say, gnats are protein. Oh, man, I always feel like Master Gunny, people could go on and on about Master Gunny, especially even the workouts and the exercises. It's like, man, for a guy at that time, he was probably in his mid-40s or so, and he was still pretty in shape for that age. I can imagine now, what, in his mid-60s, almost approaching 70, he's probably still the same. Probably still beat up all three of us combined, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Josh, I wanted to talk to you a little more, especially, I know you're a big minor league baseball fan i know you guys were at the shorebirds how big of baseball fans are you guys so uh i've been going with my dad like uh for a while now and everything it's funny i've kind of gotten more into it the older i'm getting um and i don't really follow major league ball like i follow it some but um i don't get to watch it as much as i'd like because you know i said i could i could draw when i watch tv well sports is the one thing i i I can't really do that too so i I have to kind of watch sports because i can't 
draw on watching that. But uh, I do really love going to the Shorebirds and everything. And they just had a tremendous season this last year. It was just one of the best seasons I can remember in a long time. And um, it was just so exciting, too. And just the whole season was awesome. And I remember just, I think back to that first season when they mentioned the team was coming here. And it had that new car smell. Everybody was there. It was packed every night. Everybody basically sitting from bleacher to bleacher before they put those seats in. And firework nights were insane. People were sitting in the grass where you can't even sit in the grass anymore now. But yeah, it was just a sight to behold. And all those years, I remember, I think their second year when it was Calvin Pickering and Ryan Miner and they won the South Atlantic League. When I was about... 14 at that time so it was like it was so cool seeing these guys who look larger in life and a couple of guys went on to play major league baseball and it's good thing to say well i remember that guy was playing down at purdue stadium we're playing in salisbury yeah i mean and you know we're really fortunate to have such a great stadium here and and it's just such a great feeling you go there and it's like just a big feeling of togetherness like you look around and, you know, there's different ages, everybody's different, but you're all there for the same reason, you know. And it's one of the best feelings in the whole world, you know, and everybody gets into it. And, and when you have a good season like this, it's just like everybody's in it together. And you just you really can't beat that feeling. It just unifies so much, you know, and to be part of that, you just can't beat it. Was there a particular, I guess, moment of last season that stood out to you the most? You know, um, there were a bunch of good games. I, I got to say, uh, Adam Hall had a really good season. Um, I, I think he was probably my favorite player from this year. And especially the first half of the season, he was really strong. I thought he had a bunch of great home runs. And uh, I, I liked it, too, because he always walk out to uh, In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. He'd walk out right on the drum solo. And there's nothing gets you pumped like that because it's like, da 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 It's like, oh, man, yes. I mean, that just paves the way for the home run that is coming, you know. Um, and I think he switched it up like halfway through to like jukebox era or whatever. But uh, it wasn't quite the same. But uh, it, no real particular moment I can remember. Um, I mean, there were a bunch of good ones. But uh, he had a really good season. A lot of them had – everybody was great. You know, everybody was on point. You know, it was just – it was one of the best seasons I've seen in a long time. And I guess, honestly, being so far away, even though, like, up here, the Blue Rocks were having a good season, I was so jealous seeing all this good stuff. I know Eddie would uh, basically share on Facebook a maybe a live stream of what's going on in the game. I remember there was, like, a walk-off Grand Slam one night early in the season by Encarnacion, and it was crazy. And I could only imagine that what it was like being there in that stadium because either when I was a reporter, I'd be right in the press box covering those things and like, wow. And you just get to be there and then being removed from it. It's like, it's so hard as a reporter to separate the fan part in you as opposed to when you're a fan. It's like, man, I feel bad for somebody who's got to blow up their game store because the whole score changed in the bottom of the ninth. <laughs> You got to come back home more. Come back home more. Oh, yeah. I try to get home as often as I can sometimes. You know, weekends makes it a little tough, but try to do it pretty often. And this is a fun thing about the Eastern Shore. I know a lot of people will say there's something fun about the Eastern Shore and questioning uh, eyebrow raises. But seeing a lot of people, that's probably the best part about it. Seeing people that you actually liked and you could actually, you know, tolerate. And maybe you see other people you can just sort of tolerate because you hope Thomas passed and they're not as bad. I know Matt would say otherwise with some of the soccer guys. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I, I feel like in general, that's kind of high school. Like, I mean, there's that kind of happens no matter what sport you're playing in high school. There's, there's guys you're going to like, guys you're not going to like. You know, it's just kind of, luck of the draw sometimes you know 
but yeah, there's, there's a lot of great stuff down here on the shore. We're, we're very lucky. I mean, it's for the things that we don't have, we have a lot of other great things to make up for it, you know? Yeah. And that's the one thing after all these years of being on the Eastern shore and working in ocean city, I don't want to go to ocean city anymore. Just the traffic and all the other stuff. I don't want to ever eat at a dough roller either. Just because I worked in there. When you see how the sausage is made, you opt to get something other than sausage. You know, you're like everybody else that grew up down here. You want to go to Ocean City maybe in the fall or the winter or the early spring. But like everybody else, like, you know, I have friends come down out of town. They're like here for like July. They're like, hey, I'm in Ocean City. You want to meet me? I'm like, oh, I love you. So I will. But otherwise, uh, you know. But you know what the secret is? You park before you go across the bridge and you take the bus. And then you don't have to worry about parking. You just take the dollar bus and the parking ride that's the way to do it if you got to go in the summer you know yeah i tried to do that the only time i didn't worry about parking was when i was working the booths in the inlet parking lot where i could park my car right in front of the booth i'll be fine all day oh well that's good then you had it made in the shade yeah oh oh yeah then it turns into like people watching then you're like okay you see all these people go through and go through and this and that and you hope that most people can get out of the 30 minutes and you're fine and I mean, so they don't have to pay. You don't have to worry about change and all this other stuff. But, I mean, it was a nice, what, $13, $14 an hour. That's not bad. That was time I was working three jobs at one point. So I was working in the booth. I was working part-time board op at Cat Country and Delmarva Broadcasting. And I was freelance writing for the newspaper. So it's like trying to manage three jobs to do this, to get to here, to get to there, and drive all the way from Ocean City to Salisbury to make sure I'm there to run the board for the NASCAR race. Yeah, those that are That is a lot. I don't miss them at all because, you know, hardly making any money back then, even though the gig economy. That was the gig economy before the gig economy. And that was, what, 2005, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did, uh, me and Matt worked one summer doing henna tattoos, and I was working at UMS during the week, and then on the weekends I go down there and do henna tattoos, and uh, that was an interesting job. It was fun. It was sort of weird hours. It was like from 12 noon to like almost 12 midnight. So it was kind of like weird. And we weren't like living there. So it was really kind of weird. But uh, I know he's always kind of torn because he, he loves his job in Ocean City and everything and brewing there. But, you know, I know that the traffic and everything, the dichotomy of that has got to kill him. Um, but I think he ends up getting to work like really early, too. So I think it doesn't quite affect him that much. But, yeah, Ocean City is a great town. But, man, in the summer, that traffic is killer. Especially you have one of those bad rain days where, like, the streets are flooded because the water rises so quickly and because it's, it's probably so shit. Yeah. That's a fun trip going across the bridge. I always wonder that as much as Ocean City has avoided getting hit by hurricanes, there's going to be that one day. It might not be as lucky. Yeah. I mean, let's hope not. But, yeah, eventually it, it probably is going to get hit with something. So you can't be that close to the ocean and not get hit at some point. Josh, I do appreciate it. I thank you for being a part of this, and I look forward to doing this again. What are some ways that people can reach out to you on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, if you guys do that? Sure, yeah. We are on all those things, actually. So if you go to www.plbcomics.com, that is our official website. And on there, you can uh, purchase books. We're also carried at uh, Phoenix Rising in Salisbury and Ogres Grove in Milton. We also have a Twitter, which is just, you know, PLB Comics at Twitter, whatever. And uh, we have Instagram. So we have all that stuff. But the links to all those different various accounts are on our website, too. So honestly, if you forget any of that, 
just go to Google, type in PLB Comics, and it'll all pop up. And we're all right there. Uh, and we have a Facebook page, too. So, uh, yeah, feel free to check that out. We've got lots of stuff. We do a couple different books. We got a Vampire Hunter book. We got a Vigilante book. And we got John the Swamp Dew book and the Halloween book. So, lots of variety for everybody. But it's all kind of the dark and gritty nature. How did you guys come up with the name for PLB Comics? I was always curious about that. Does it stand for anything in particular or... It does. We like to say that whatever you come up with is better than what it actually stands for. Um, kind of make it mysterious because what it actually stands for is not great. I came up with it when I was seven. And, uh, you know, I'll just go ahead and tell the story. It's just not impressive. So prepare yourselves. Um, so we grew up in the woods back on a farm. And there was this kind of like a pit in the ground, kind of like a big hole, I guess. And there was a tree growing out of the middle of it and it had vines. You could swing across the pit from one side to the other and anything. So it is so deep. It's a bottomless pit, you know, and uh, I'm dyslexic. So when I was young, I was like bottomless pit. That's a good name for a comic, bottomless pit comics, you know, but I couldn't spell that out. You know, and it's too much to write on the cover of books. So I'm going to abbreviate it. Bottomless pit comics. PLB because I'm dyslexic and then it just kind of stuck. So that is the secret origin there. It's not terribly impressive, but everybody always says, Oh, that's so cute. I know you mentioned the dyslexia. Did it severely impact you, especially going to high school, learning and reading and things like that? Um, yeah, school was kind of hard throughout everything. I mean, school was hard. College was hard. Um, I wasn't really diagnosed with it because they weren't really doing it back then. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those deals where you, you just kind of get used to it and you just, I have an unusual process when it comes to making comic books though. And, and I'd like to think maybe that it is because I'm dyslexic. I don't know. Um, what I do is I, I kind of come up with a loose plot. I draw the book out. And then when I'm scripting it, when I'm seeing what dialogue goes into what panel. I do that after I've drawn everything. Um, I've tried it the other way. I tried typing up a script and everything. But when I look at the script, the printed out script, and then I look at the page that I'm drawing, when I look at this page with a script on it, the letters just do this dance around, you know, and I'm like, I can't focus it. So it's easier to do it kind of the opposite way. But it's not too bad. I mean, it, it is what it is, you know. It could have been worse. Yeah, I always wondered if there's like certain severity with dyslexia and knew a few people who've had that. And, and you think about, you go through a lot of the celebrities that you hear who have dyslexia and a lot of people have accomplished stuff. I know Whoopi Goldberg has dyslexia. Henry Winkler, the Fonz has dyslexia. Stallone. About Stallone. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how, you know, you find out that and with that, issue they're still able to ascend to where they've ascended and and i don't want to make it sound like i'm making it either a small thing or or bigger than it is but i, I feel like still that's something very tough i mean a lot of people back then it was probably even worse they were they were probably called dumb this and that and and it's just hard to imagine what it was like going through that and then i assume especially in the 90s and the 2000s people are a little more knowledgeable of it and are a little more understanding of it yeah i you know and and, and it's one of those things where, like, living now, like, back then it was probably terrible. It was probably like, oh, you know, what are you, like, a drunk idiot or something? And I probably thought they were drinking all the time. But, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it was just I always had trouble spelling anyway. And I just kind of, like, it sounds weird, but if you kind of just take your time and slowly read it, you can kind of, like, fix the – I, I got to tell you what was really hard was algebra because it's letters and numbers. That is tricky because that's just like they're throwing everything at you. I failed algebra like I don't know how many times, like 
bunch in college. I don't have like a D or something. Other than art, what was your favorite subject in school? Uh, other than art, um, I really like gym in public school. Um, I had a couple gym classes in college. I really like my speech class. There was a uh, really good public speaking class at UMS, and I really enjoyed that. And I feel like I've actually used that a lot. We do like library workshops occasionally where we, we talk about our comics and everything. And, uh, you know, it's really helped with that. Like public speaking is a good skill to have, even if you don't use it much. I've been able to use it a little bit. So that was a really good class. I really enjoyed that. Well, Josh, I do want to have you guys back on and I look forward to doing this again. Absolutely, man. This was a blast. Thank you. I'd like to thank Matt and Josh Shockley for being a part of this interview, and I look forward to having them back on in the future. If you like this episode, don't forget to share, give a like, and leave a review. You can find this episode as well as other episodes of the Sports Refuge podcast by going to the Sports Refuge website, www.thesportsrefuge.com. You can also subscribe to the show wherever else podcasts are heard, including Apple, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, and much more. You can also find video excerpts from this and other episodes of the podcast by going to Instagram and following us at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, all one word. Next time, my guest will be New York Mets minor league pitcher Hunter Parsons. We'll talk about what it's like being selected in the MLB draft twice, pitching at the University of Maryland, and how his faith helped him in his baseball journey. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge Podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.